Well, hello, all you beautiful homesteaders, land lovers, and farm life dreamers. Today, you're in for a treat. I talked with Grace, who is known online as the shepherdess at Harmony Farms in Sulphur Springs, Texas. She does rotational grazing of Dorper sheep and some cattle. She made the leap from a life of online marketing to livestock farming. And just two years in, not only is she profitable, but has accomplished a huge following on YouTube, social media, and her website, shepherdess.com, where she's dedicated to building a community around sheep farming simplified. I am Judith Farrell Horvath, shepherdess and owner at Fairhill Farm in Central Ohio. I started with illegal backyard chickens while at my white collar job, and after getting busted, the family made the leap to farm life a decade of farming in. Now, the world is a different place, and yes, is it worth it? We talk about the experience of the startup and the steep learning curve, and everything that goes along with adopting a farm fresh lifestyle. My mission is to help you sidestep avoidable errors and unnecessary costs or losses and help you be successful in farming. I bring stories of others who made the same leap, hear of their successes and fails in their lives today. And now, enjoy the interview. Hello, Grace. Welcome. So nice to meet you. It is so good to be here. Thank you for having me today. Well, uh, we have a little bit of time to talk today, and uh, I consider this a a treat. Um, I have been watching the materials that you have put out and uh, really reading a lot of the things that you write about and and watching things because, um, if I'm not mistaken, you seem to be very into the space where you're encouraging people to get started and do something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of the same space as I am. We have very different tactics, but it's sort of the same space. So this is a really special treat. Having you on here really speaks to my entire mission, and I want you to take it from here and tell the audience who you are and what you do and why you do it and what's up. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening today. I am probably better known across the internet as the shepherdess at Harmony Farms. About three years ago, after seeing sort of, you know, what was initially portrayed as food shortages, couldn't get anything at the grocery store. Ultimately realizing it was not food shortages, it was just a total breakdown in our food system. I realized I had a responsibility in seeing that firsthand to, you know, not not save the whole world, not feed the whole world, but at least feed my family. At that point in time, we had just moved to the country. Ironically, about two years before that, we had moved to 30 acres from the suburbs of Austin, San Antonio area to a very rural 30 acres in East Texas. We weren't at that time doing anything with it, Um, but had as a family been eating grass-fed meats, grass-fed proteins for years. And so when I sort of saw that deterioration of our food system on a large scale, I looked at that 30 acres and I said, I can do something about this And not only can I, but I have a responsibility to do something about this. You know, with knowledge comes accountability. You know, and you see problems. And at that point in time, you are responsible if you don't do something about it. You know, something bad comes of that situation into the future. So long story short, I bought the book Salad Bar Beef by Joel Salatin. As some context here, I had no previous experience in agriculture. So the fact that I wanted to raise grass-fed meats was a total conundrum to both me and my family. But ultimately, it's something that 
I really want to be transparent about with my faith here. I believe that the Lord really put it on my heart to do this. I picked up the book Salad Bar Beef by Joel Salatin and was introduced to the principles of regenerative agriculture and rotational grazing for the first time. And at that point in time, we were raising a flock of sheep, um, had just bought them to maintain an agricultural exemption. The health of that flock was really struggling. We were basically about to boot kick them out of our life and say goodbye to agriculture. But the principles that I learned in that book, Salad Bar Beef, um, really gave me what I needed to make that flock take it from absolutely sick, dying to a productive, profitable thing. Um, I have a background in marketing. Digital marketing is actually my background and has been my sole occupation for um, the greater portion of my adult life. So um, in juxtaposition with this opportunity to grow food, I did also see the profitability and the marketability in grass-based agriculture and basically hit the ground running three years ago with my grass-based business. Wow, that is quite a journey. So from the point where you moved to the country till the point where you had gone through the, I'm quitting and then I'm turning things around and I'm starting again till what you consider success. What was that time frame? Yeah. So we moved to the country in 2017. Um, the land that I'm working with now, it was actually family land and that flock was initially, it did not belong to me. I purchased that flock um, after having a moderate level of success with grazing them. So 2017, we moved there. 2018, um, the family bought a flock to populate the acreage and maintain an agricultural exemption. 2020, I decided to get into agriculture, uh, wanting to do it with cows and having success instead with sheep. Bought the flock in 2021. And here we are in 2023. Wow. So you've been doing, you've been knee deep in sheep for year and a half, two years now. Mm -hmm. Year and a half, two years. And, and before that, I had just watched. I was an onlooker and I thought that sheep were honestly the worst idea ever because of just the <laughs> extent to which we struggled. Or it wasn't me at that point. I was, you know, trying to stay as far away from agriculture as possible, just to be honest. Um, but I initially was interested in the beef cattle because I saw it as an easier alternative to the uphill climb um, that I watched in that two years. But it was really those regenerative agriculture principles that made me realize, okay, it's as much management as anything with respect to health of animals and land. And it just became such an incredible and satisfying experience to really jump in with both feet um, with the sheep. Um, yeah, to where that's kind of a lot of what's behind my passion right now. Huh. And you felt that cows were going to be easier than sheep? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm wrong, all the pictures I see of you, you are not a tall person. You are not uh, Amazonian, nor am I. Uh, so how, how does one have the feeling that cows are going to be easier to work with coming from zero agricultural experience than sheep? Yeah. So that goes back to just, I'm going to be honest with you, we live in an area of the country. It's extremely wet. It's extremely humid all of the time. Mm -hmm. And when we brought sheep into this arena, we thought they were going to be mini cows. But one thing we didn't know about sheep was that they struggle 
And basically for the viewer who might be new or the listener who might be new, internal parasites basically come and hit heavy when you've got an animal on a continuous grazing system where they're never moved off the old grass, which has their manure all over it. So basically, long story short, sheep struggle two or three times more with these internal parasites than cows. And so that was the health context that I saw as cows being easier than sheep. Oh, so you were aware of the struggle with parasites. Absolutely. All right. Well, sounds like you had some struggles with the sheep at the beginning. And then you also, you kept some cows because you were doing both for a while, right? Yeah. So have you pivoted to all sheep at this point? Do you still have cows? You're going to continue to do both? Yeah, sheep are my big cash flow, uh, my primary money maker. And the cows are an excellent source of um, meat, I guess you'd say. But Mm -hmm. I can't, I don't make as much money off the cows as I do the sheep. I keep the cows primarily just to benefit um, the overall health of my operation. Grazing them together really complements. And the cows, um, just as a mini micro lesson here, the cows will graze ahead of the sheep and become what's called a dead end host for the parasites mm-hmm. um, and basically vacuum the parasites off the pasture before the sheep will eat there. And the cows do not, they're not susceptible to the same type of parasite as the sheep are. So basically it's a healthier system when you have both. And that's really why I run both. I didn't realize that you ran the sheep after the cows. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Or at least together, it, it's, it's at this point in time, kind of whatever is um, working at the moment, mm-hmm. but at least by having them together, the load is minimized because those cows are to some extent ingesting some portion of that load on the pasture. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And you said that your sheep are your main moneymaker. Are they for meat or wool or what, what is the, what is the profit um, stream mm-hmm. from that look like? Yeah. So I am running Dorper sheep and it's the hair breed. So they're primarily for meat mm-hmm. and they grow an incredible carcass on grass and grass only. So it's a meat product. Um, now with the traffic that I'm getting through, um, my various marketing streams, I have a lot of demand for people just wanting to buy my sheep and start mm-hmm. their own small acreage operation. Um, so primarily at this point, I am able to sell the better portion of my lambs as breeding stock, and mm-hmm. then whatever I can't will go out as meat. That's, that must be really satisfying because you spend all this time taking care of these animals and raising them. And it, I would have meant, well, I know that when I have to choose between going to be processed versus sold live, I would much rather sell you know, live lambs to other people who are starting their flocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it is both. And, and, and it really resonates on both scales. You know, we process the lambs that we don't sell as mm-hmm. um, breeders. And to be honest, it's satisfying on both levels and that you have a product that was raised ethically mm-hmm. and you have, that was raised by you, you know, and it's on yeah. your plate and it, yeah. you know, the process from pasture to plate, you don't like to think about it. Um, but it's so satisfying even on both, on both levels. Absolutely. It's very satisfying. And I think that I think that people who I mean, obviously, your message is going to resonate with a certain segment of people, but that further connects them to your message when they're able to purchase one of your sheep from you and and take advantage of your other things that you teach. So you want to talk a little bit about the other things that you teach, because I mean, I don't know if that's your main revenue is the animals themselves, but you certainly do a lot of other things. I mean, 
masterclass, meetings, merch, webinars, uh, articles, posts, podcasts. I mean, you, you do it all. How do you, are you a farmer first? Are you a marketer first? Are you a yeah. teacher? And what, what, what do you consider yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Now that's a good question. And I've been asked that a lot and mm -hmm. I am a farmer first because if I was to take farming out of any one of these equations, I would not have any one of these equations. Okay. Um, but when I jumped into farming three years ago, it was something I knew that I had to do. But I was also told right up front that I would never, ever make money at something like this. Um, but as a marketer, I understood that diversity in any business, not just farming, but in any business is key. And so I began this process of number one, I launched my farm business, but I also launched just this address aggressive diversification um, plan. I launched a website. I launched a YouTube channel. And from there, as traction gained, you know, you put out those little feelers, those little tests, and you begin to press into the channels and the avenues that are gaining steam. And that was really, it, it's been an organic evolution from those two primary streams, which were my YouTube channel and my website into what is now. And basically what it is, it's just responding. It's answering people's questions. You know, you mentioned the live meetups and the classes. Well, people started asking me, well, how do you market? What do you know of marketing um, from your experience, you know, 10 plus years doing it? And so I would just begin to start teaching them how to build a newsletter, how to launch a website. Um, just the fundamental things and it grew out from there so yes it's a big it's a hive right now but it just it started with started small is that what you studied did you go to college for that no self-taught I in fact I started my first business when I was still in middle school and oh. it was on the internet so I say digital marketing that's just a fancy way of saying um, specializing in selling things on the internet, marketing things through the internet. Um, so that was something I came with a really kind of a deep background in. Wow. That's interesting. So self-taught and doing all kinds of digital marketing, felt the urge to go into agriculture. How did that, how did that feel though? I mean, coming, not coming from a agricultural background and suddenly there you are dealing with right. the the visceral raw reality of raising livestock, not growing up with that. I mean, mm -hmm. my family, when I told them I was buying a farm, they weren't surprised, but they were a little bit, I don't know, they, they, they had a hard time relating. And I know that the learning curve for me was steep, even though I had jumped in. So it, I always love to hear what other people say they mm -hmm. felt or they noticed or what was the first big sort of slam in the face with like, whoa, I thought farming was going to be like this and it's something else. Yeah. Yeah. So for me personally, um, there was a lot of uncertainty going in. There were times where I was just sitting there thinking, what in the world am I doing? Am I even doing the right thing? But again, I, I have to be as honest about this process as I can and say, this has been as much a matter of faith for me as anything. And so every time I'd hit a roadblock, Every time I'd hit this place where I have my hands literally in my face saying, I don't really know if this is really what I'm supposed to be doing, especially given the fact that I am the most unlikely person to do it. Um, the Lord would open a door. He would put someone in front of me to help me to that next step. He would put a piece of information in front of me to where I could take that next step. Um, and so 
if you look in the context of the entire picture, it's extremely Mm -hmm. overwhelming. But if you look in the context of, do I have what I need to take the next step? And you simply take that next step. um, I think that's probably the most important piece of advice I can give is, do you have what you need to take the next step? Okay, just take it. Sounds like you knew what the next step should be though. And you were looking for ways to accomplish it. I think a lot of people who get into farming, they don't know what the next step should be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that monetizing a YouTube channel and monetizing a website. I mean, even that you understand that, oh, yeah. website can make money and oh, YouTube channel can make money. Yeah, how, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's a big challenge for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. There's a saying that I really, it's not an original to me, but it's something that really helps. And it's start with the end in mind. I think one of the first three videos that I made, it was something of a $100,000 farm business plan. And I knew that to be able to sustain myself on the farm, I needed Mm -hmm. to find some way of generating roughly $100,000 per year off of the farm. So I just, starting with the end in mind, I was miles away from actually doing that. But I sat down and I put a pencil to paper and I said, okay, what's it actually going to take for me to get from zero to $100,000? And by the way, um, if I may plug it, this is actually a free template that I offer to people to be able to do the same thing for themselves. And that's available at shepherdist.com for you. It's absolutely free. But start with the end in mind. Sit down and say, what is what is my primary enterprise going to be for me at that point? It was sheep backing up for that. Me at that point, it was cows. And it was at this point that I transferred from sheep to cows when I actually sat down with that pencil and paper and said, okay, if I want to make $100,000 off of my farm. It's going to take, I can't remember quite what it was, 50 or a hundred beef cows. There was no way on 30 acres that I could sustain 50 or 100 beef cows. But I took that and translated it into this specialty warper breed that I was running and realized, okay, it's only going to take 50 or 80 ewes. But those 50 or 80 ewes, they're the equivalent of about 10 cows if you go by the animal unit equivalent. And that is very achievable here on my 30 acres. Um, So that is a very relevant question. A lot of people jump into farming saying, I want to be a farmer. Okay, but what is your end goal? Do you want to just enjoy the experience or do you want to actually make money at it? And you really have to start backwards. You got to find your market. You got to decide what you want to sell and then work backwards from there. That's good advice. That's really good advice. Uh, you had a design, uh, there's a visual design that you put out there that is a line drawing of a house. Can you talk about that a little bit when it comes to supporting this other point you're making? Absolutely. So marketing, um, and this is just where I really, I really feel like I want to encourage people really hard in marketing, especially farmers, not just people, but farmers in general. It's an arena that really Um, needs to be marketed a little bit more heavily. But what you're referring to is what I call uh, my internet marketing house. And there are about six or seven components, six or seven tools that I call them, um, that you really ought to build out if you are looking to sell things on the internet and really be successful in selling things through the internet. Um, And the elements are such they're laid in sort of the same order that you would build a house. 
and I put very specific importance on each component. So when you're building a house, the first thing you lay is a foundation. And I tie that foundation, I liken it to a newsletter. And that that is the element that you ought to build first. From there, I suggest that people begin framing in their operation with a website, a blog tied to that website. And then from there, you can build e-commerce into your website and blog. And e-commerce is just the capacity to take people's credit cards over the phone. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I teach how to do things like Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Because until this point, you know, we were building our house, we've got our foundation, we've got our framing, but we don't have people, you know? And, and I encourage people to find one avenue, one platform where they can begin drawing traffic from. Just to take it to a personal context, um, I use I use all three, but predominantly I found people through YouTube and I attracted people to my newsletter through YouTube. Hmm. I attracted people into my house through YouTube. Um, and ultimately I do have Instagram, Facebook, etc. But to start your business without that foundational element of self-owned platforms it's basically like that three little pig story, you know, one built out of straw, wood, et cetera. Um, because to build a business with a majority of your audience on a platform that you do not own is, is just asking for trouble. And so I always encourage people to establish a newsletter first and do everything they can to build into that newsletter from the very onset. That's good advice. That's, that's solid advice. Want to talk about some setbacks that you've had in the past two years? Uh, like we were just we were chatting a little bit beforehand, and I was saying, "Oh my goodness, this last just month has just been a whirlwind." Mm -hmm. Now, Texas has not had it easy the past couple of years with drought and fire and power outages and extreme cold. Now, I'm not very familiar with Texas geography, to be fair. So when you talk about being a very wet area, that sort of doesn't resonate with me because I think of Texas as being big, dry, but it sounds like it's not where you are. So you've had a lot of setbacks or mm -hmm. things to deal with, I guess I should say. Yeah. Yeah. The past yeah. couple of years. Want to talk a little bit about yeah, that? Most yeah. Most notably, probably in the past year, we had one of the worst droughts in what would be a hundred years. It's second worst if I am the most technical. Um, I do live uh, really close to the Louisiana border. So we are in a very normally wet area. Mm -hmm. Um, and what that means is that we just don't have the watering infrastructure in place for the water to stop falling out of the sky. And so it did in a big way this past year. And it put my normally 100% pasture-based situation into a bit of a compromise because we basically did not have any pasture. And I spent a long time over the summer kind of chronicling what that looked like. Well, it looked like a lot of expenses. It looked like a lot of selling animals I never intended to. Um, mm -hmm. to make it through the summer. And here in spring, I'm getting ready to put out a little bit of a series. It looks like rebuilding pasture after the drought and after a month or two of just, to be honest, overgrazing because it was just such a difficult stranglehold um, on our water situation here. But yeah, definitely, definitely a huge learning curve this past summer, especially. And power outages too, right? Didn't you guys have some big power outages from storms? Yeah, that one was that one was actually a little bit more of an adventure. It was actually very good timing. It was a three day power outage and we had snow and ice. 
um, which totally knocked it out. But it came at a very nice time because I kind of needed to be pulled away from the uh, social media end of things. And then it kind of came back after I uh, had my respite. So that was a bit difficult. I did lose some animals in that particular season. It was more of the animals that were struggling already. And that's typically what will happen is you get a spout of bad weather and it'll it'll knock out the weaklings. So that was disappointing. Um, but overall, I was kind of actually grateful for the uh, freeze situation. Are you that type of person who needs to be made to sit down or when something makes you sit down, you're secretly happy? Yeah. Yeah, I really am. I was talking with a friend the other day. I was like, as extroverted as I seem, I'm the type of person whose battery recharges, you know, when they're in, in a quiet room, just kind mm-hmm. of having a minute and then I can go back out and, and do whatever I need to do. So, well, farming is, I mean, it's, it's very much a lot of solitary time, mm-hmm. a lot of right. thinking and a lot of mental rumination happening out there, at least, you know, when I'm doing my work outside, but I imagine it's the same for every rancher and, and livestock farmer who works mostly alone. And uh, yeah, I enjoy talking to other people, but I recharge alone like that. Now, do you spend the majority of your time working with your flock or doing other aspects of your business? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is another thing that I also have a saying on. I don't know if that's a saying, but I say that I market right now on a three to one ratio, meaning that for every one hour I'm spending out on pasture, I'm spending three hours marketing my flock. Oh, wow. That's quite a ratio. Yeah, it's, it's true. And people are kind of shocked at that, but I think that is, to be honest, the ratio you need to be looking at if you're going into this as occupational. Um, so yes, I spend about one to two hours every day Mm -hmm. on pasture as an average. There are some days where I'm out there for six hours straight, Mm -hmm. but as an average over the year, I'm, I'm on pasture one to two hours a day and I am inside either working on a newsletter, working on my website, um, working on finding new or unique products to sell on my farming website mm-hmm. about six or eight hours a day. So that's a lot. That's a lot of time. Mm-hmm. So you set up sponsorships and affiliates, and you've got this whole marketing and, and business ecosystem sort of uh, circulating around your dorper sheet. Is that correct? Yeah. So the marketing, the affiliates and the, I don't do a whole lot of sponsorships or affiliates. I've tried that a little bit in the past. I just haven't enjoyed it very much. Um, So I focus more on selling my own products, um, either products that have helped me, things like grazing books, people. And again, it comes back to answering people's questions. What are they asking you about? And is there a way that you can provide that to them and sell that to them at a little bit of a profit? So one of the the ways that's worked out for me personally is there's a set of five grazing books that I bought as an absolute beginner. Mm-hmm. And one of the most frequently asked questions I would receive was what kind of books really helped you at the onset? Yeah. Well, I was able to spend some time finding, you know, a wholesale source on those books and now offer those books at shepherdist.com. So things like that take time to find that wholesale source, um, to list those products at your website. And that is one of the elements of diversity that I have added that's also added um, an income stream to my farm, a unique and diversified income stream. More recently, like you were referring to, again, answering people's questions. They'd be like, how do you build a newsletter? How do you build a website? How did you build out your Mm e-commerce? I just created a class on each one of those things um, and began to offer that to people in the context of farming, best practices for farming. And so those things take time. 
What about mentors to help you? You talked about resources and books and what about mentors, like the, the human quotient? Absolutely. Yeah. There is one in specific in particular. And again, this is just something that I could never have planned for myself. It was only what I believe the Lord did, but I have a very close neighbor who is um, part of the National Grazing Lands Coalition. His name is Carl Abel. And he was one of the first people that came over three years ago, sat on my porch for three hours straight while I asked him question after question after question as a beginner. Um, And I cannot, I can't say where I'd be as far as this is without that particular person. He's just one of several. Um, But yeah, you're absolutely right. You cannot remove the human quotient. I've, and, and as I've realized that a little bit. Um, I do have a free monthly live stream that I'll do for people and I'll bring those people who have been helpful to me. Carl Abel was just on last month Mm -hmm. and I'll bring them to a live stream meetup where people from around the world can talk to them for an hour and ask them questions for an hour. Um, So yeah, you're absolutely right. You can't remove the human quotient and it's so important. What an amazing gift. I mean, that's that's such a, a cool story that you have you know a, a guy who a farmer farmers are <laughs> if i'm going to paint farmers um of a, an earlier generation um with a very broad brush there it's generally not um three hours sit on the porch and spend time talking about the uh the newest trend in regenerative agriculture i know and it's something i only realized more and more and what a gift it is to have that relationship, but it's amazing. How did you meet him? He was the neighbor. And the funny thing was we moved here, uh, 2017 and his wife and son came over and brought cookies, which, you know, was really nice. So he's you know, really your neighbor. Were... Like he's literally your neighbor. Yeah. Like 15 minutes oh. away, you know, we're in the okay. deep country. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we were like, they, they brought over these cookies and, um, started talking about grass and I was like, okay, that's really interesting. <laughs> they're, they're that kind of person that just talks about grass, you know, here I am. But it was very interesting because two years later um, and here to this day, yeah, we talk about grass together now. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. Any other mentors except for this, except for Carl? Maybe I would Carl? say he would be the biggest one. And from there, I just, I'd latched on to anyone who knew anything about cows. You know, I, I think that he's been the most helpful because he's in the same regenerative category, but mm-hmm. I've learned a lot from people who just raised cows, or I've learned a lot from people who just raised sheep, um, whether they would call themselves regenerative or not. So, um, and the interesting thing about this is that I, with my YouTube channel, I have basically chronicled every mentor that I've had. I've said, you're really helping me a ton. Can I get you for an hour on my YouTube channel? So um, I think another mentor would be um, Joel Salatin. And mm-hmm. he gave me about an hour of his time for a podcast. Um, and that was the first podcast I had ever done with anyone. And oh, what was, an opener, oh, what an yeah, opening act. Oh my God. No wonder you've done so well so fast. <laughs> oh my so, goodness, Grace. <laughs> yeah. How did it you was land incredibly that? exciting. Again, I have no clue. I just got to give God the glory. I texted on Christmas Eve. I found their um, contact information on the internet, 2020, Christmas Eve, 2020. Mm-hmm. And I said, is there a chance that I could get an hour with Joel Salatin? You know, I was, I'm willing to pay. And she, she didn't write back, but Joel Salatin wrote back and said, I, I've got an hour. I don't even know. My mind was blown. 
And he just gave me an hour. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and then from there, I was able to actually meet him in person at Polyface just this past year. It was really, really a neat experience. So his book was the first one I... I know, Every, right? Everyone in this space has to go on this pilgrimage, right? But this is, I know. Yeah, absolutely. I was so excited to meet him. I went with my daughter. She was considering applying to the uh, summer internship program, but she wanted to visit the farm before she applied. She wouldn't want to just mm-hmm. blind apply. So we drove all the way from Ohio to, to South Virginia and we went in the polyphase tour. And she's, she's like, yeah, this is really, she was on a regenerative, um, regenerative uh, cattle farm she lives there with her boyfriend and her boyfriend's family they own this down down the street in the same valley as us but down the road and so she was doing rotational grazing with their broiler chickens and their cows and everything and they've been following all the polyface designs and stuff and building stuff and in shade mobiles and stuff and they've been they've been doing this for two years so she went and she wasn't sure if she wanted to take time away to go do the in summer internship if she got if she'd be lucky enough i'm sure there's five hundred thousand applications at this point for every spot yeah and uh she said this is really cool uh i'm gonna i'm gonna let someone else take the spot it just didn't it didn't feel right for her for whatever reason that's cool but i left um after meeting joel and spending time talking to him and it was, it was sort of a miserable day it was all like cold and rainy and so no one came and it was really awesome that way and we drove like a mile down the road and there's this little church right down the road from his from his farm and i had to turn into the parking lot and i just like started i just got like overwhelmed with emotion yeah i just got completely overwhelmed and i just started like crying and my daughter's like mom oh my god what are you doing i'm so glad you held this in until we left it would have embarrassed me so bad and i said i'm sorry it's just happiness it's just coming out in tears like i wasn't sad about anything i was just overwhelmed and it was such comfort and so impressive to meet joel and see his operation and see how doable it is and how simple it is and how authentic and genuine he is and how he's very matter of fact and practical and giving of his time and explaining things in a very digestible way and it suddenly all felt so achievable and that was the thing that just struck me it struck me and it was such a a big moment it was such a big moment i came home and i'm like all right i'm yeah (laughs) clearing off the desk looking again yeah i think you said it achievable i think that's the first book that that was the book that I read that really made me feel like okay this can be done and you just said it well and you said your neighbor Carl is a cattleman he's not even a sheep guy right Mm -hmm. right he was the cattleman um he and at that point like I said I've explained this evolution of beef to sheep Uh Um, but he also raises goats and goats and sheep have a lot of the same struggles so he was able to really walk us through a lot of the struggles oh he does so he does meat guts Mm-hmm. yes that's growing in the united states mm-hmm. it is it's a big market good good prices no matter where you sell them basically um so yeah goats are huge they are can we pivot a little bit to the food supply situation like you talked about yeah absolutely yeah. so right now we have a lot of farmers we have a lot of ranchers um and we have four primary packers 80% of the nation's beef supply goes through these four packing systems. 
and they are in charge of processing and distribution for all of it. So in 2020, what we saw was, yeah, we saw real food shortages, but on the other side of the bottleneck, there are always two sides to a bottleneck. You saw millions of pounds worth of animals being euthanized because they could not be shoved through this bottleneck fast enough. So you saw basically this anomaly of starvation and waste. Now, starvation is a strong word because I don't think anyone in the U.S. starved to death. But essentially, that's what you're looking at. Huge waste on one side and huge starvation situations on the other. And that's what we are still dealing with on a large scale. And that's really why I was encouraged and do encourage people to create local food sources, establish connections with your local food processing um, and get it as much as you can farm to consumer. And so that is what we're looking at long and short of it in our food supply system today. Was the cause of it the COVID shutdowns and people processing in the plants? Yeah. Yeah. So we saw, you know, about two weeks where we had the shutdowns and then very limited capacity with what could be processed beyond that. Um, and so, yeah, that created a huge backup. And people hear this and they say, yeah, but the, the lockdowns are over. Are we back to business as usual? Mm-hmm. To an extent, I would say yes. But what we're also seeing is that with that monopoly comes price control. Um, we're seeing prices higher than ever before on the grocery store shelves. And yeah, a lot of that has to do with inflation and some of the economic issues that we've been facing over the past couple of years, which is an entirely other conversation. But the reality is, is that it's not just the rancher that is monopolized on with systems like this. It's the consumer as well, because margins on this beef are higher than they ever have been. And so they are basically getting the beef at extremely low prices from ranchers, harvesting the profit margins from the front end to consumer who is now used to paying, you know, five, $8 for their ground beef, $10 for, you know, what used to be six and it's, it's in their pockets. Just today I heard uh, another podcast uh, where they cited that, Today's cattle herd in the United States is the same size as it was in 1962. Obviously, we don't have the 1962 population size anymore. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That that speaks to much lower herd size and less beef. Do you feel like it's been replaced by alternate meats or, or vegetarianism, alternate proteins or something else? Or is this... Is this just the, the, the way thing? Is this just an adaption to the drought? What do you think? Yeah, it is being replaced by imports, which is an even scarier situation. Uh, mm. We have more beef than ever before coming from South America. Nothing bad to say about South America, but the problem is, is that creates an even deeper level of fragility in our food system. And we have the average age of the American farmer and rancher is at 54 with one third being 64 or older. So we also have an entire industry aging out as well. Um, So you have all of those dynamics at play and the herd size in the U.S. was extremely tightened up with the drought and we're Mm -hmm. compensating for it with imports from South America. So that can really put a 
strain on the system if there is any kind of issue with yeah. um, BSC, the bovine spongiform encephalitis medcat disease or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. What happened was in 2020, mm -hmm. a restriction was lifted um, with respect mm -hmm. to entire beef carcasses being imported from Argentina. It was a restriction that was put in place in 2016 for some of the things that you just listed. Yeah. The disease was found, et cetera, and it was lifted in 2020. And since then, imports have skyrocketed. And when imports happen, um, it dilutes the market for American beef. To mm -hmm. be honest, Argentine beef is not bad. I mean, it's it's a fairly quality product. They're raised on pasture over there. Um, you do not have the same standards that the American producers are held to. So you do get those diseases sneaking in every once in a while, mm -hmm. but as a product, it's not terrible. And it's not, you're not able to tell the difference between an American beef and, you know, that Argentine beef most of the time it, until, until something bad happens and you cannot access that beef um, and the entire population, you know, the food system. Do you feel like the small livestock segment is helping to fill in like oats and sheep the small livestock segment i would say it's an interesting thing that you have there you have a lot of ethnic demand which mm -hmm. is the muslim the jewish etc population who eat sheep and goats instead of beef it's still a bit of a transition to get the american consumer used to the idea of eating sheep they'll eat lamb maybe twice a year Mm -hmm. goats it's like wow that's exotic um so it is still a little bit of a matter of consumer education when push comes to shove the interesting thing was and just we we had the firsthand experience to watch this during covid you know people knew that we had sheep even though our flock was struggling we had people calling us friends calling us saying i can't find anything at the grocery store do you have any extra lambs out there um, so when push comes to shove, they're going to eat anything. But right now, I think the majority of the population is still used to beef. Interesting. Have you personally tried goat? I've never tried goat. I, I really like lamb. I mean, it's a really excellent product. Um, but you never grow it. goat. <laughs> it's good to like lamb since you, since you grow it. It's right. good to, I'd be happy to have it in the freezer. I'm the same way. Uh, but goat... Uh, I went to a cafe and they had a goat burger on the menu. I thought I have, I'm an adventurous eater. So I thought, well, you know, I've never tried goat before, but nothing I've ever had here has been bad. And so I decided to, I mean, I was hungry, but I wasn't starving. So I thought, yeah, <laughs> I'm not too hungry. If it sucks, you know, I'll just have a salad. That'll be it. It was fantastic. It was very reminiscent of beef. So if anyone's listening to this and you have this fear of uh, biting into a goat burger and you're afraid that's going to smell like it's going to taste like what you imagine a goat smells like. Uh, that certainly is not necessarily the case. Good. Yeah, I might try it myself one day. It is lamb, tasty. Guys, lamb is 100% guys go for lamb. Oh, and yeah, goat's good, but... absolutely. Lamb is great. How do you like lamb. to cook lamb? We use it in place of beef. We will just make cheeseburgers out of it we will roast it like we do a beef roast you can mm -hmm. basically supplement it as you would for beef mm -hmm. i have a question for you now how do you decide what you're going to write about or talk about next what is your inspiration mm -hmm. answering people's questions simple as that um people will ask me a question and it will turn into a video and that's been probably the way that I've gained a majority of the audience that I have. 
Another thing is just, it's been a real reflection of personal revelation, I guess you could say. Um, Mm -hmm. When I started to find out these things about the large scale meat industry, it's like, I got to tell people, created a video on it. It's been one of my best performing videos. It's just people have no clue what's going on. So answering questions and uh, making my videos an extension of kind of a personal uh, revelation of, of what I'm uncovering day to day. Are you talking about the investigative sort of big picture videos that you make? Yes. So one right now is doing really well. It is why beef is expensive and ranchers are broke. And that one explains the um, beef supply chain from beginning to end. Another one is going on half a million views. And it was just simply why or how sheep earn 400% more than cows. And it just simplistically explains how I came to the understanding that I was going to make a lot more money off of sheep than beef. Um, Another series that was, again, really popular um, was one, it was the Amish farmer story that just recently was resolved and how the government kind of came in and started to overtake his operation. Um, And that one was also very, very popular. I don't want to be too tinfoil hat. But let me just say that there seems to be a lot more eyes open these days to things that people who have been in agriculture or have been in certain segments of the population has sort of been uh, aware of and and wise to for a long time. It's almost like there's a lot of people that are starting to kind of rub the, the sleep out of their eyes and say, wait, what? When did this happen? You Absolutely. know, kind of a lot more awareness. Yeah, I and I and I hope it stays aware. You know, we go through these waves where your 2020 hits and everybody's aware. Everybody's awake. You start to fall back to sleep again. Um, mm-hmm. So you just got to kind of keep your eyes on the goal. Sorry, my dog is sleeping and whining in his sleep. Stop. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right, go ahead. You're starting to make these weird noises. I want someone to think I'm like rolling over my dog's tail with my chair or something. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So people are waking up in 2020. Then they go back to mm-hmm. sleep. Uh huh. Yeah. They go back to sleep, but the problems are still there. And I think that's oh. important to remember that if you've set out on this and um, if you've set out on this with a true awareness of the problems, you need to stay the course. There was a an article in the Stockman Grass Farmer came out last month. And Stockman Grass Farmer is a magazine that Joel Salatin publishes. And he said, there is a six-year cycle he and one of his veteran friends has observed in newcoming homesteaders or newcoming farmers. And there's this two years of honeymoon phase where everything's beautiful. There's two years where the reality of this job sets in where, mm-hmm. yeah, you have animal death, you have the difficulty, you have unmet expectations. And then for those who do not persist through that two years, there's another two years where they're just, they're getting out of the business faster than ever. And so as you sit there, and this is something I talk to people a lot, and you watch this cycle, and maybe you're part of that new coming farming generation. Hopefully you are, because we need more of it. You need yeah. to have a really strong reason as to why you are doing what you're doing. And you need to revisit that reason. Every day you feel discouraged. Um, and that is going to be one of the strongest anchor points for you is why you're doing what you're doing. Do you get discouraged? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But discouraged There's no you. animals dying mm. or possibly coming up on places where I set goals and they were not met or possibly coming up on the realization that 
you know, you, you jump into this, you jump into a marathon knowing it's a marathon, but Mm -hmm. you hit mile 12, mile 13 and you get tired. Um, you just got to keep pacing yourself. You've got to keep pacing yourself, got to keep pacing yourself. And so, yeah, I think that this is an interesting thing. I, I put out a video. I'm talking about some of the discouragements that have hit this winter and, I receive emails and feedback from people and they say, I don't think I can do it if it's that discouraging, but you have, you have this incredible parallel because as discouraging or as low as it gets, you also have those incredible highs, which are basically unlike anything else personally I've ever experienced. You have the joy that just juxtaposes against that grief and they balance each other out so beautifully, but you can't quit in the trenches. Um, You've got to keep climbing. I agree. I've heard others describe it as you don't under you don't appreciate the sunshine unless you see in the darkness. But farming really shows you who you are, and it exposes so many more facets of life and so much more uh, struggle as well as beauty and appreciation for small things, and then all understanding when to surrender to bigger things like weather or you know uh, whatever the case in God's will, whatever the case may be, and. I have certainly found that. I mean, there's a difference, I think, between hearing it and saying, yeah, I understand it, then living it and going, oh, this is what they're talking about. Right. And it's it's almost like, well, what you do is definitely a lot of education. It's coaching and education. You know, you're remarketing your farm, but your, your, your product seems to be encouraging others and helping to, well, fulfill the mission that you talked about at the beginning, which is be part of a solution to a bigger problem. Uh, just speaking of the demographics you know, that you cited, which are alarming. Uh, I have I have cited those to people, by the way, many times, and their mouths sort of fall open. They're like, wait, what? How is, how is, how is, how are we still feeding the world? And how is this not going to fall off a cliff? And I'm like, well, because farmers don't like to retire. So we kind of got lucky. But yeah, there's a big situation coming and, and, you know, it's all hands on deck. And then at the same time, people who wake up, and this is my own observation based on nothing but my own little, you know, life that I travel around in. It's a, it's such a digital world. It's such a virtualized world. I think there's a larger growing segment of population, especially in people in like their thirties. I'm 50, 51 years old. So, I mean, this, I'm seeing this in people that are 20 years, my junior and there seems to be this recognition of that problem. They're feeling that disconnect. They want to do something, air quotes here, I'm going to do my air quotes here for over the over audio, real. You, know, you can't just sit down and type something. At the end of the day, you're dead tired and you, know, you get home and you're frustrated. And you have nothing to show for it. I think they have this feeling that the realness, the, 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 the visceral hands-on experience and outside in the weather and struggling with predators or the elements or fixable problems or even insurmountable problems is going to scratch that itch and it does but like you said it's it's that dichotomy it's that great joy and these great struggles and that sort of character building in between which i think is what gives farmers their endurance and their perspective it's true it's true because Um, if you're getting into, this is something I have to be honest about. If you're getting into this because you want to quit your nine to five job and have a better experience, 
there have been days and weeks where my nine to five is would have been therapy compared to what I'm doing <laughs> on pastor, what I have to do. So you got to have a deeper reason. And I think a lot of times people will do both. They'll start. And I encourage this really heavily. This is what I did. They'll start small. Keep your day job. Don't quit it until the income from the farm is really suitable to float you. But start something small and have get a taste of really that joy that can come on a small scale when the risk is low and go for it that way. Um, because that is... If we could have, if we could have a million part-time farmers tomorrow who were willing to grow three beef steer on whatever seven, 10 acres that they have, three sheep, seven, 10 acres that they have, and begin on a small scale reconnecting with the process of growing food and providing it for local communities, that is going to do a lot of good to have that volume on the small scale. And that is really one of my biggest pushes. My slogan is, I don't have my armband on today, but think big, start small, don't quit. There's no end to the size that you can attribute to your goals. You can make the goal of earning $1 million from your farm, but it starts small and it starts with just being faithful with the small thing in front of you. Small scale farming is one of the questions that I ask almost all my guests. What, what do you believe is the future of small-scale farming and how does it fit into the overall food chain it it needs to be a bigger part of the picture bigger part of the picture what we saw in 2020 was what we will maybe maybe not in our immediate lifetimes but if not our children will face um, things on the horizon with respect to just the, the absolute dislocation of food of people from their food is really really bad. And so I think your question was, is this just a fad or is this something ongoing? Well, it might be something that people are more awake to because of 2020, but we need to stay awake because in the long term, no matter how back to normal things go in the next couple of years, we are going to need a deeper connection to our food um, more in the coming years than we ever have before. Are you a believer that we are at peak oil? Maximum production of petroleum and oil mm. coming out of the earth. Um, sort of yeah. uh, the ERO, the energy return on energy investment when it comes to drilling and new wells and things like that. There's a lot of people who have written about peak oil through the years. And mm -hmm. there are some, there's some big brains out there that kind of tie, you know, our food our food supply chain and our food security to the end of cheap energy because of oil and the whole world is petroleum based. I mean, in the United States, we can transport raspberries 3000 miles, you know, in the middle of winter and think nothing of it. Everything is single use plastics. There's all of these things that come from petroleum and uh, the stuff that's been easy to mine has been sort of scooped up. And I, I'm again, I'm super simplifying for the sake of illustration. But with the conflict over in Russia and Ukraine, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of oil production, which is sort of tenuous. I mean, we see what happened in Europe with the Nord Stream pipeline getting blown up and the way that affected Europe. They, got, they had a nice mild winter, so they're fortunate. But I cannot help but think that we're going to start seeing 
a different type of food supply chain that needs to be invented and uh, navigated and grown here in the United States. I mean, I, again, this is my own personal belief, but I feel like, well, okay, I've got a, a, a crop farmer down the street from me and she used to spend $18,000 a year on fertilizer for her row crops. Past year, she spent $42,000 for that same amount. That money has to be reflected in the price of food. It also means that grass-fed operations are going to be less susceptible to that hike. And at the same time, our depleted soils are gonna be more productive on grass-fed operations. Well, you have these massive, massive uh, confinement operations and, and I realize that's that's what it takes at this point to feed everyone in America and we're still a net food exporter but I cannot help but think that in many ways one of the things that Joel has talked about is yeah we have the land to feed more people we have to use like he, I think he used like the middle of cloverleaf medians and like in like public green spaces as like sort of little examples and grazing sheep under solar panels and and things like that but a lot more small farm, small operations that are grass fed operations that are going to be more resilient. The soil hoard holds more water, um, more drought resistant and less need for grain for inputs, which is ultimately very petroleum thirsty because of the mechanization and the way that that is produced and harvested and and transported. I know I painted a very sort of big, I threw a lot of things on the table there. What do, what do you think about that? Yeah. So I don't know enough about the peak oil topic to really weigh in on it, but I yeah. really resonate with the latter portion of what you're talking about. It's just the overall resilience of a grass-based system. No, you're mm -hmm. not trucking in loads of grain, which yeah, the price of grain and the price of what is mined out of industrial agriculture is being really heavily subsidized yeah. by things like cheap oil or cheap mechanization, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so we, we've lost, I believe, a perception of the true value of things like grain, which we're, we're pouring into our operations by the gallons. And yes, I totally resonate with the resilience in a grass-based system. It's a resource that's being way underutilized and it can be um, an incredible asset. Your land was less impacted by the drought than your neighbors is that correct with respect to management or just overall uh, topography well when you got when you had the drought mm -hmm. so your neighbors were scrambling around to find hey yours was bouncing back after a small amount of rain is that correct i recall reading that somewhere in one of your posts it really was it really was now with the rotational grazing i was able to keep a continual inventory of what kind of grass i had ahead of me and when i needed to pull my animals off sell some cows, which I ended up selling the greater portion of the beef herd that I did have. Um, but by keeping that inventory, I was able to watch, make sure it did not push, was not pushed too hard. And then once that rain did come, there is a buildup of available soil nitrogen when you have a period of drought. So it's the, the ground is continuing to fix those nutrients, pull those nutrients out. And mm -hmm. then when the water comes, it just absolutely explodes. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, it was so encouraging to see, to see that process. Well, right there, you didn't have to buy hay 
too much hay from other places that might have needed to be transported from far away or mm-hmm. grains and other supplements for your animals. Yeah. 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 I did have to do, I mean, I did have to, in all honesty, I had to do a fair amount of that, uh, but not as, as much, not as much. Hmm. So how far are you into your goals of uh, rehabbing your pastures? So the pastures are pretty well there. Now they were in really good condition when I found them or when we had them. Um, what I encourage people towards is a slow rotation is better than no rotation at all. Uh, we had been facilitating a very, very slow rotation with the sheep for about two years before I actually bought them. So the pastures were in really good condition just from the sheer amount of rest that they had. Um, so as far as pasture rehabilitation, I think I'm about where I want to be with that. Congratulations. That's that's impressive from reading the book. People who are listening to this, you, t- you gave a lot of tips. Um, for the next generation of farmers or anyone thinking about going into agriculture, someone who's young and they're thinking about doing it um, as their first career, what would you suggest to them that they look at and think about or explore? Absolutely. Um, Start as small as possible. Take the smallest set possible towards that large scale goal. For you, your goal may be to be in agriculture as an occupation, but you may not be able to get from zero to 60 overnight. It may take a series of years. Establish a time frame in which you are willing to devote yourself 100 hours a week to accomplishing that goal if necessary and be willing to apply yourself. Um, there is no better thing that you can do than to start small. Your losses are small. You learn small but you also lose small. And so you can start today if you're willing to start small. And there is just, if you're faithful in what is small and what is the least, um, you will also be faithful over much. And that's not from me. That's a verse that actually is from the Bible. And so just show yourself as faithful as possible in the small things. And I really believe that that large scale, um, larger goal is going to be accomplished for you. That's beautiful. So do you have anything in the uh, in Skunk Works or in development next that you want to talk about or tip your hand? Yeah, I am getting ready to do the grand opening, launch the grand opening of shepherdess.com. Um, to this point, it's been just a blog. It's been just a hub for my YouTube videos, but it is something in the past six months I have been working to grow it into a hub for all things Sheep Farming for Beginners. So it's going to be a resource hub where you can find free resources, where you can find all of the education basically that I wish we had when we bought sheep and had a really difficult two-year uphill climb of just death and somewhat disaster. It's going to be that place for beginner sheep farmers wanting to get into the industry. So shepherdist.com grand opening is going to be happening, Lord willing, at the 1st of April. And that's also going to correlate with my 2023 um, livestock sale. My goodness, that's so exciting. I am so excited. Oh my gosh, I bet you're going to do great. I bet you're going to do great. I've really seen the the sheep uh, prices really hold steady. Are are your sheep registered? Some of them are, some of them aren't. I'm primarily commercial and I do have a few registered head. Sounds like there's something there for everyone. Mm -hmm. So do you have plans for expansion on your current farm? Um, Are you going to be leasing more land? Are you, what, what are your plans for going forward? 
So I am always open to expansion. As of yet, nothing has really panned out for me. Um, and, and, and to be honest, my initial goal was to make it on 30 acres. That was my initial goal uh, to, by 2027, be generating a $100,000 with a net profit minimum of 30000 on 30 acres. So essentially net profiting 30000 net profiting 1000 an acre by 2027. I'm just going to keep chugging towards that goal. And if expansion opens up, I'm going to take it, but very carefully because my goal is kind of small scale. Do you feel like you would need more people in order to expand more? You kind of maxed out for what you do personally? Because you're, you're sort of a, an army of one, right? It, it looks like an army of one, but I have an incredible support system in my family um, and in those behind me. Maybe they're not as much out on pasture. Maybe they're not rolling up the poly tape every day. Um, but they have dinner ready for me when I've worked all day or just things like that. Um, and so, yeah, I do. I do have sort of an army behind me, maybe not on pasture with me, but I couldn't do it without them. That's fantastic to hear. What a nice thing. So how can people support you and follow you? Yeah, absolutely. Shepherdist.com. It is launched now. The grand opening is the end of the month, but you will find everything there. You will find my free worksheets. You will find my free training. You will find all of my latest YouTube videos, and you will find a little bit more about me. All right. Well, this has been really exciting, and I have really enjoyed talking with you, and uh, I would love to do it again sometime, check in with you again in a year and say, hey, how things how, how things go with your with your new website and your new ventures and, and your sheep sale and everything. Absolutely. I have enjoyed this so much. So thank you for having me. I really appreciate the time and uh, good luck to you and um, God bless. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Okay.